Good morning. Welcome to another of our Wednesdays in the Word as we continue to examine God's Word together verse by verse. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. I hope you've been with me for a while, and if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to previous teaching times. Today we are in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, and I want to begin by reading verses 1 and 2 from that book. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? <laughs> a wonderful question, isn't it? And a very practical one to give us as we turn attention now to the unfolding message in the book of Romans. Chapter 5 in the book of Romans, just by way of review, if you've been with me, you'll benefit from that review. If you haven't been with me, go back and explore further the things that I want to share with you right now in a brief form. Chapter 5 ended with a focus on sin and the gift of God's grace as it related to dealing with the essential problem of sin in the human condition. We learned about sin and what it really meant. That sin at its heart is a determination to rebel against God, to rebel against his law, whether it's in his written form of the scriptures or what's been written in our conscience, and more importantly, perhaps, to rebel against his rightful authority over our lives. We also learned that sin began not with humanity, but began with Satan, the devil, the enemy of our souls. He chose first to rebel against God's purposes and authority over his life. He then targeted other angels and induced many of them to join him in their rebellion against God. Genesis 3, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, introduces us to the fact that at that point in time, then Satan turned his attention to targeting mankind, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation to rebel, to break God's law, to rebel against God's rightful authority over their lives. Sin occurred, and as a consequence, Adam's sin and Eve's sin not only corrupted their own lives and brought about a consequence for them as individuals, but it also set in motion a corruption, a distortion of humanity in general. All through history, all have inherited the genetic corruption of an inclination to rebel against God. After explaining to us more of the nature of all of that and the nature of that sin, the chapter ended, chapter 5, by reminding us about grace and the wonderful contrast that God's grace creates with the tragedy of sin. In verse 13 in Romans 5, it says, But the free gift of grace, of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, is not like the trespass. And we talked about ways in which the free gift contrasts with the problem and outcomes of sin choices. How the free gift of God actually helps us, it doesn't harm us. And the summary, of course, of it all was in the phrase, His grace is greater than our need. It solves the sin dilemma. Well, that's where we ended 
with chapter 5. And we come into chapter 6, and in the unfolding teaching of the book of Romans, a question now emerges. And the question is this. What about the reality that as redeemed believers, justified in the sight of God because of our repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, our resting in the gospel, what about the very real fact that we continue to struggle on a daily basis with the temptation to sin in our lives? And not only struggle with it, but stumble in the midst of that temptation attack. What about all of that? How does all of that relate back to the wonder of grace and the free gift that's offered us, the wonder of our salvation and so forth? How does sin work out in practice in the life of the believer? What is God's plan? Let's put it in a slightly different way. What is God's plan to deal with the continuing evident power of sin within our lives as redeemed believers? Big question, and important question for all of us as we seek to understand what it means to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sixth chapter begins by even talking about an implication type of question. It is this, does it even matter that we defeat sin's power in our life? Since we are now standing right before God, justified, covered with the perfect life of Christ, does it even matter? whether we deal with sin properly anymore? And if it does matter, seeing that we stand right before God based on the perfect life of the Lord Jesus, if sin, in fact, does still matter to us, how do we overcome that ongoing reality of sin's temptation and struggle within us? Now, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 of the book of Romans are given over to addressing these core questions. The questions about the power of sin and growing and dealing with sin now as redeemed believers. So really, chapters 6, 7, and 8 have no bearing, no real application to the unsaved, the unredeemed individual. Because now the attention is on the person who stands right before God, not because they're good people, but because of Jesus. What does that individual do? in dealing with the reality of sin. So there's a lot to study in these chapters ahead, but I want you to understand that's the context for our study. Let's begin, as verse 1 begins, by posing the question, if we are now under grace, and of course the if is rhetorical because we are under grace if we've repented and believed in the gospel. If we are now under grace, does it really matter whether we stumble in sin. Does it really matter whether we successfully deal with the ongoing reality of sin's temptation in our lives? Verse 1 puts it this way, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? (laughs) By no means. Here's the point. When people begin to understand the wonder in certainly it is a wonder, of chapters 3, 4, and 5 of the book of Romans, the wonder of Christ's righteousness being credited to us, the wonder of being justified in the sight of God, passing out of judgment into life, the wonder of 
being made righteous because of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people really start to grasp that and begin to rest in the gospel, an obvious thought is going to arise in one's mind. It's the logical thought. So it's not like there's something wrong that the idea occurs. Well, what is that question? What is that idea? What is that logical thought? Well, the difference is this. What difference does sin make in my life now that I am a believer? <laughs> what difference does it even make that I may stumble or sin? Because the gospel tells me that Christ's death on the cross paved for sin, present and future. I can rest in that. I will always be covered by the perfect life of Christ. I've been passing from judgment into life. So does it even matter? What difference can it make? What difference does it make that I sin and stumble as a believer? What a critical question it is. And God, who gave us his word and breathed it out to us, assumed, at least we can, uh, we ourselves can assume it, God assumes that question is going to occur to the thinking person, the person who tries to meditate upon the word, the person who wants to understand God's purpose. He assumes we're going to ask that sort of question. <laughs> and on that question, what difference does it make that sin in, occurs in my life now as a believer? There have been many answers offered. The problem is many of those answers that have been offered aren't biblical answers. They may be rooted in logic. They might be rooted in someone's experience. We need a biblical answer to a most fundamental biblical question. What difference does sin make in my life now as a believer? <laughs> does it matter? Let's see what God has to say about it, which is our whole purpose in unfolding the word. It's our whole purpose in these Wednesdays in the word times together. In answering the question, this fundamental question that verse 1 introduces us to, I want to begin by turning our attention back to a question that we thought about in the fifth chapter, in verse 10 of the fifth chapter. In that verse, we were thinking about and focusing on what God had revealed in his scriptures about the wonder of Christ's continuing intercession for us before the throne of grace, before the presence of the Heavenly Father. You remember the question that was behind our understanding of verse 10 of the fifth chapter was this. Because sin initially is the reason that our relationship with God was broken, and we had accountability before God, an accountability we could never ultimately solve apart from God doing something for us. Why is it, after we've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we don't lose our salvation once we sin and stumble again? That was the question, you remember? <laughs> if one sin was enough to separate us from God to begin with, why doesn't a sin subsequent to the time that we've responded to the gospel also separate us from God and put us back into the predicament that we were in before? And we discovered as we looked further at that in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans that the answer to that was this. We now also have not only a savior, but a high priest, a savior who is our high priest. And he now ever lives, as Hebrews puts it, to intercede for us. He continually applies the shed blood of the cross to our continuing stumbling in sin once we became a child of God. 
We looked at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where we learned these words, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Talking to believers now. But if anyone does sin as a believer, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. I mean the payment. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 7 verse 25 said, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he ever lives, always lives, to make intercession for them. So, chapter 5's question is, why don't we lose our salvation if we stumble after we respond to the gospel? And the answer is, well, because of the wonder of Christ's high priestly work on our behalf, his continuing intercession, the continuing application of the propitiation for sin that was accomplished at the cross. All right, a wonderful backdrop. <laughs> now we turn in chapter 6 to a similar question. It changes a little bit, but it's still a very similar question. Since all of that is true about the cross and about the gospel and about the high priestly continuing work of the Lord Jesus Christ for those who've repented and believed, does it even matter then how I choose to live following the time I repented and believed in the gospel? Does it even matter? Good question. If our sins are now covered by the cross, and for the redeemed child of God, God promises they will continue to be covered by the cross, by the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood. Does it even make any difference if we stumble, if we sin? <laughs> in light of justification, in light of the continuing intercession of the Lord Jesus, does it make any difference? Are we making a mountain out of a molehill here? Is this just sort of academic? What possible difference could our stumbling in sin make? The point is, that type of thinking, which is not illogical, but that type of thinking translates the idea of the justification we have in the Lord Jesus Christ into some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. Those of you who are listening to may, might be familiar with the board game Monopoly. And one of the cards that you can win and use in that, in that particular uh, board game is a get out of jail free. Uh, in the midst of the board game, you can be sent to jail and that card will get you out of there right away so you can continue on in the game. So the question is, is the work that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, the justification that is now ours, that as Romans 5.1 begins, gave us peace with God? Uh, does that act like a get-out-of-jail-free card as it relates to sin? In fact, the question that is underlying these opening verses of chapter 6 even goes further. And ironically, this is how it goes further. The question is posed, well, of course, Paul's writing this, but under the direction of the Holy Spirit, so it is God breathed. God poses this question. Won't, in fact, won't my continuing stumbling as a child of God, my continuing sin as a child of God, simply continue to demonstrate the wonder and limitless grace of God? That because I'm his child, he continues to overrule the effects of my sin. 
Doesn't it just add to God's glory that people look at me and see that I'm a real piece of work, that I'm not uh, a good guy, I'm not growing, I'm not, I'm not being who I should be. And then by looking at me and then seeing that I'm accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't that just add glory to God? Now, doesn't indirectly that sort of thing, that sort of reality that I'm not dealing with sin properly, just make the gospel seem all the more precious and wonderful to people? Now, that's the question. Think about these opening verses, and clearly that's the underlying question that's emerging in the midst of this question of what about sin? Now, how does God answer that question? Well, he answers it this way. Verse 2 of chapter 6 starts out by saying, by no means. <laughs> now, there's these questions, the question of does it even matter if I sin, and even more, <laughs> Won't my continuing sin just demonstrate God's wonder and glory and grace even more? God's answer to that is, by no means. Now, let me translate by no means to you. What that literally means is Jesus, looking at you and I, says, where is your head? In other words, that's a phrase we use in the United States to describe somebody who's just not thinking right. It's like, where's your head? What are you thinking? God's responding to the person posing these questions, thinking about these questions, says, wait a second, where's your head? What are you thinking about? If you really thought it through, you would understand how foolish those very questions are. The fact that you may be seriously entertaining those questions in your mind simply shows that you're not understanding and grasping the whole counsel of God as it's revealed in his word. What's the point? Well, the point is this. The person who seriously entertains these underlying questions, like how can it matter that I sin anymore since I'm saved, and won't my continuing sin simply underscore God's wonder and grace of forgiveness, the person who's saying those things has overlooked some fundamental biblical truths. The Bible clearly teaches us several things that show why God says about these things, by no means, or where's your head? <laughs> Let's look at those points. Number one, one of the things we discover in the Gospels and in the Scriptures in general is this, growing in holiness. Because God's holy, and we are called to be holy like him, growing in holiness is God's intention for his children. How can it possibly be that it doesn't matter to God whether we're growing in holiness or not? And of course, if someone feels that, well, it doesn't matter if I sin, then it is the same thing as saying it doesn't matter really whether I'm growing in holiness or not. How can that be true if God says my goal for you is to be holy like I am holy? Not just positionally covered by the cross, but practically how can it possibly be the case that growing to be a more holy person is somehow unimportant and irrelevant for the redeemed believer of God? Secondly, here's the truth the scripture reveals to us. Sin in the life of a believer, though forgiven and praise God it is, that's John 1, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I'm writing these things so you, you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Sin, though forgiven in the life of the believer, still hurts us when we commit it. 
it still corrupts us when we commit it. To be forgiven, to be covered, doesn't mean to be immune. To sin in our life will still hurt us and will still corrupt us, even if it is forgiven. And so listen, how can we say it doesn't matter if we sin anymore, if in point of fact, sin in the life of a redeemed believer will hurt them and corrupt them? And here's another related point. Sin, though forgiven, still will disrupt our current day-by-day relationship with the Heavenly Father. It will do that. It doesn't interrupt our eternal relationship with the Heavenly Father, but on a day-by-day basis, you will be just as much like Adam and Eve, hiding away from God instead of walking with God. Sin causes separation and disruption temporally here and now. And the fact of the matter is, Sin will bring for the children of God, not the unredeemed, but for the children of God, it will bring in the Hebrews 12 sense, the disciplining hand of the heavenly father on us. (laughs) So sin matters. It impacts on our experience of relationship with the heavenly father, and it brings God's disciplining hand in our life. Even if we passed out of judgment into life, we haven't passed out of disciplinary hand from God. Finally, what we've been discovering in these earlier chapters in Romans is this, that when we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, we are born anew. God changes us fundamentally at the deepest core of our life. At our deepest level now, we desire to live in harmony with God's word, with God's purposes, with God's nature. He has changed us fundamentally, and therefore sin choices make us uncomfortable. They conflict with the core of who we now are. Romans 7 will develop that theme a lot further for us. So, fundamentally, here's the issue as we study chapter 6 and begin our study of chapter 6 at any rate. There is a world of difference between the answer the Bible gives us when we ask the question, how can I be saved? And when we ask the question, how can I grow and please God now that I am saved? Those are two very fundamentally different questions, and therefore God's word answers them differently. The first question, how can I be saved? To answer that question, with anything other than this statement, to repent and believe in the gospel. To answer it any way than that is to proclaim a false gospel, to be guilty of legalism, to lead people to assume there's something they can do to ultimately solve the condemnation that has separated them now and forever from God. And that sort of other answer can creep into groups. We are saved by grace alone. As Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 put it, for it's by grace that you've been saved, not through works, lest anyone should boast. So the first question is a clear one. Chapters 1 to 5 has gone to great lengths to answer it for us. How can I be saved? Only by repentance and faith in the gospel. Because it's a grace issue, 
Nothing you can do, no new leaf you can turn, no religious rite you can follow will ever save you. Only Christ saves you. But the second question, how now that I'm saved can I grow and please God? That question is an important question too. Because if we don't answer that correctly, the implication would be that, well, now that I'm redeemed, I can live pleasing to the Lord with something less than a commitment to obedience, a commitment to holiness, a commitment to surrender. Many offer that answer because they confuse the two questions. How, do I, how am I saved? And how do I live now saved, pleasing to the Lord? The God who redeemed us sent his son to die for us. The scripture tells us, bought us with a price. And a consequence of being bought with a price, as the scripture puts it, our lives are no longer our own, but his. <laughs> it is a discredit to the truth of the gospel, unless we understand that. God promises in the gospel to make us born again people, to make us new creations. And as new creations, to have the opportunity now to live in ways pleasing to him, useful to him, that give glory back to him. He's called for us now to grow as disciples. No one is saved because they grow as a disciple. But anyone who is saved who is not growing as a disciple is a discredit to the gospel and displeases God by definition. Does that mean they can't be saved? No. But it means they can't please God. And they're not going to grow. They're not going to find God's grace operative in their life here and now to deal with things in their life. To be redeemed without a subsequent determination to grow as a disciple is contrary to the very essence of the gospel. That's the reason that six, seven, and eight chapters in the book of Romans turn our attention to this question of growing, dealing with sin, living lives pleasing to the Lord, filled with his spirit, to talk about the gospel separate, <coughs> excuse me, from talking about discipleship disconnects what God does not disconnect. That's, by the way, the reason that Matthew 28 ends, the last chapter of Matthew, ends with what's often called the Great Commission, which is a command to go into all of the world to preach the gospel and to disciple people, make disciples in all of the nations, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. Why? Because observing all he commands saves us? No, but because that's what builds us as disciples. And if we disconnect the preaching of the gospel from the building of us as disciples, we've artificially severed what God didn't intend to be severed. So two different questions. How might I be saved? By repentance and faith alone. How might I now saved live pleasing to the Lord? No way less than surrender and growth and obedience. Becoming a disciple. Well, lots more to say about all of these things. I hope you'll continue to join me as together we examine what the book of Romans explains to us about this next related question. What about sin now that I'm redeemed? Join me then, won't you? God bless. <music>